0: This week on New Mexico in Focus, we're on the changing Rio Grande with our land.
1: We are short of surface water. We've been short for, you know, going on 20 some odd years.
0: And we talked to the health secretary about the status of New Mexico's vaccine push. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Many of us have vaccines on our mind this month. In addition to that interview with Dr. Tracy Collins, we'll bandy about New Mexico's success and stumbles with the line opinion panel. We'll also take a different look at the Rio Grande with an innovative art installation that explores the deep history of the river. We start with the governor's action on bills from the regular session, what lawmakers got done, and what might have missed its chance.
2: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021, and I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Hope you all are having a terrific week. We have had a busy one here with the the show, and we're going to jump right into it with our line opinion panel for this week. We are joined by Sophie Martin. She is a regular here on the line, and another regular, Dan Foley, former House Minority Whip. And rounding out the Zoom virtual table, Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. And we're kicking things off with sort of a wrap-up of the legislative session, the last step really in the process of everything, all that work that was done for 60 days in the regular session. Is for the governor to sign or not sign or veto any of the legislation and there's been a lot of action on that front continuing right through today the big news today was that the governor did sign the budget that was passed by the legislature but that's just one of a slew she has until today to get that done and anything she doesn't sign basically goes away as well but there were several landmark bills passed during the session we've talked about it a lot during the session and we should point out that uh, the clock is still ticking for the bills that were passed during the special session uh, here just a little bit ago so those can still come to her uh, desk and she'll make her decision there although we're pretty sure how that's all going to fall out but we wanted to break down what we know and sort of use that as a springboard into evaluating the session in the whole. So here now, let's turn it over to host Jean Grant and the line panel.
0: Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham put her name to scores of bills over the past couple of weeks. With comfortable majorities in both chambers of the legislature, the bills have, as we've discussed here before, reflect the changing nature of the Democratic Party? What will they mean for our state and what might have missed its chance in the regular session? Here to help us sort it out is the Line Opinion Panel. We have two regulars and a frequent guest this week. Editor and publisher of The Santa Fe Reporter, Julianne Grimm, is back. Former New Mexico House Minority Whip Daniel Foley returns, as does another regular, Sophie Martin. Always glad to have Sophie. Now, let's start with the most recent action in this special session because the governor has signaled SHE WILL SIGN THE BILL TO LEGALIZE RECREATIONAL CANNABIS IN JULIANNE. IS THIS THE GAME-CHANGING LAW IT WOULD HAVE BEEN TWO OR THREE YEARS AGO? IS THIS A MATTER OF CHANGING THE LANGUAGE, WHICH A LOT OF FOLKS ARE TRYING TO DO? OR IS NEW MEXICO A LITTLE FURTHER BACK ON THE CREST OF THE WAVE OF STATES DOING THIS?
3: I mean, even though New Mexico is uh, not the first state, you know, we're up in the high teens now, I think this is a game changer in New Mexico. This changes the way that, you know, a lot of New Mexicans conduct their, you know, daily lives. It frees people to participate in the recreational, relaxational substance of their choice rather than saying alcohol is fine and cannabis is bad. Um, So I think that is a big, significant change for New Mexico. Uh, We are also going, to see tax revenues for the local and state government that represent not small sums of money, no matter whose math you are using. Uh, so I think those are two big changes that are coming.
0: Let me ask Daniel on your point there about the financial impact. Uh, is it tourist, Daniel? Is it you know, native New Mexicans. Where's 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 the largest coming from when this thing gets going?
4: So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're going to see a you're going to see a, 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 a kind of like you know. And I'm not comparing the two. It's sort of like the, the gambling, right? You're mm-hmm. going to see if you're in, located in Albuquerque, you're pretty much attracting Albuquerque. If you're in Riadoso or Hobbs, you're attracting people from Texas. So you know, I think the people in northern New Mexico. I, I'm not sure that it's that big of a deal because it's been legalized in in uh, in uh, Colorado. But, you know, the folks that live down on the on the side that are closest to Texas, mm-hmm. big deal. A lot of people from Texas will be coming over. I think there's definitely going to be a tourism aspect. Look, New Mexico has long been an outdoorsy kind of hippie kind of state, right? I mean, it's kind of been a place where people like to come to Chaco Canyon, have a spiritual interaction. Uh, so I can see this enhancing. Uh, that opportunity for more people to want to come here. I think it's also going to be, be a uh, you know, I think to some level you're going to see an increase in the use of, uh, uh, by New Mexicans. And so the question is, you know, will you see a trade-off, you know, will more people, will people stop buying beer and alcohol and use that disposable income to buy marijuana uh, or, or what will happen? And so I, I think it's going to be a combination of the two. I think geographically we'll have a bigger impact on where that money, whether it's tourism or not,
0: Dan, let me me go back to a question uh, that was part of the question with uh, Julianne as well. I, you know, two or three years ago you heard things like, oh, we're going to score 250 to 300 million our first year doing this. Now you're hearing things like 25 to 50 million, uh, you know, coming in. Do we really know how much we're going to make out of this in the first couple of years?
4: not only do we not know how much we're going to make out of this and, and look, I, I want to go on record. I, you know, I was, I've been a, a fan. I've been an advocate of uh, decriminalizing and legalization since I was in the legislature. Don't I use it. Yep. I just think it's odd that you can go out and drink a pint of vodka and, and that's okay, but you can't go out and smoke a little bit of weed. It makes no sense to me. Um, and it's a personal choice. Uh, I think, I think, you know, it's interesting that the numbers are coming down. One of the reasons I think the numbers are coming down is the growing process is becoming more manageable. It, there's, you know, more of, uh, of pricing is becoming more effective uh, being able to go out and get it. I, I think, you know, the big, the big question is going to be uh, the long-term, potential long-term consequences of what the net revenue is going to be, right? Are we putting away 10 or 15, 20, 30, $100 million today? And, you know, the question that you hear from the people who opposed it, are there long-term consequences later on that are we getting that money today? And not more importantly, are we putting that money away to solve those consequences later? Um, I, I think 25 is far a far more realistic number. But remember in the past when we were talking about two, $300 million, it was when we were gonna be one of the first states right. to legalize it. So you'd have people, you know, there's no doubt that there is a complete uh cannabis tourism industry, right? I mean, there's there's an entire industry geared towards doing that. Now that we're not gonna be one of the top five, first five, I think that revenue is gonna have a, have, a, have an impact. There you go.
0: Sophie,
3: I interesting- think it's important.
0: Go ahead, Julia. My fault.
3: Sorry, I just wanted to say, I think it's important too. And when you look at all these calculations about the um, over time, the changes to this, you know, over time, the expectation is that fewer people will turn to the illicit market and more people will be buying their cannabis in these taxed and regulated industry, you know, retailers. Um, But that's not, you know, going to be demonstrated until time marches on. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, factors that will feed into it, including like whether you see cities and counties raise their GRT, um, they're already, you know, in the the tax code allows you to to increase your increment if you vote. And so kind of how much um, cannabis is taxed is really going to be a factor. Mm -hmm. The law also contemplates changing the tax rate over time. It it doesn't just contemplate it, it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, So the excise tax starts off at a certain rate, and over six years, it increases all the way up to 18%.
0: Good points there, absolutely. Sophia, a really important part of this uh, situation, has this become more of a social justice bill? Um, I, was it, just it, gonna yeah. I was just going to say that.
5: I was just going to say that. So it's, it's worth remembering that there were really two pieces of legislation that addressed New Mexico and cannabis that came out of the special session. And the first one that was decided was automatic expungement for certain, um, certain what were criminal offenses relating to cannabis. And that automatic expungement will mean that people who have convictions for cannabis possession will no longer have those on their records, and 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 that's a that's a big thing um, because because that record um, can follow and does follow somebody as they try to get jobs as they you know, you know, as they go through their lives. And so that expungement, that clearing of that record, because we no longer consider this to be a criminal matter mm-hmm. is a very big deal and something that they were able to take care of up front. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about the costs and the, the, you know, look at it from an economic perspective. It's still important to think of the the social justice and the community justice issues for us in New you know, for our larger community in New Mexico. And then also to recognize that there will likely be savings in terms of our incarceration costs and um, our policing costs. I know, you know, yes, we will, we will still have DUI um, laws on the books. People won't, you know, there won't be no consequences if there are issues with your cannabis use, but um, certainly those, those smaller, um, WHAT WE NOW CONSIDER PRETTY INCONSEQUENTIAL POSSESSION CHARGES THEY NOW
0: GET. LET ME SWITCH A GEAR HERE. Uh, JULIANNE, I'LL START WITH YOU. THE GOVERNOR SIGNED A NUMBER OF EDUCATIONAL BILLS, INCLUDING, YOU KNOW, TO MAKE SURE FEDERAL AID FLOWS TO LOW-INCOME DISTRICTS AS WELL AS MORE STATE MONEY TARGETING, YOU KNOW, MANY OF THOSE SAME PLACES. And also to create an ombudsman for special education. Let's not forget about that. And to get more teachers from state colleges and universities. Does this feel significant? It something feels significant here when you take them all and push them all together in that education pile.
3: Well, I think that the you know with the Democrat-controlled um, legislature and with the governor's priorities, they were able to push through some of those. Um, you know, plans that have been long envisioned um, by that faction. And I think that overall that will help education in New Mexico. You know, I still think we've got a long way to go. And especially with school uh, just returning in person and all of the kinks that need to be uh, worked out with that Um, and the awareness that internet connectivity is really a big problem. I don't think that it was a new problem that, you know, cropped up, but it just became Um, people became much more aware of how this can affect a student's potential outcome, you know, whether they have steady, reliable access to the Internet or not. And so I think that um, while some of these big funding wrinkles have been ironed out that um, there's, you know, you're going to see a lot more education reform happen, um, I think, under this current leadership
0: if it continues. Julianne, Yazzie Martinez is sort of floating over this whole thing. Does this help in that situation? Again, all these individual bills getting towards that goal?
3: Certainly, you know, I wasn't able to review every single piece of the package that's kind of known as the the Yazzie Martinez package of reform, Um, but you know, that court case really made a lot of directives to the state, which I think the state has been really slow to roll out. And um, again, with the pandemic, those areas where the need was great, it just became exacerbated, became more obvious how great the need is and what New Mexico needs to do to serve students in rural areas, for example, and students who have language. um, differences who have English as a second language, um, and in native communities, those are really important.
0: Yeah, You know, Dan, uh, broadband came up just a little bit ago. We've been watching close over here the rural-urban divide on these things. You know, but creating oversight for, you know, state spending to look close to that divide, you know, does it feel like the state is starting to get a handle ON WHAT IT'S GOING TO TAKE TO EXPAND BROADBAND? ARE, are WE THERE YET? Or WOULD YOU LIKE TO hear, SEE SOMETHING A LITTLE BIT MORE?
4: YEAH, I, I THINK, YOU KNOW, IN A LOT OF THESE TECHNOLOGY THINGS IN NEW MEXICO, WE'RE ALWAYS A DAY LATE AND A DOLLAR SHORT, RIGHT? Mm-hmm. I MEAN, WE'RE TALKING ABOUT BROADBAND AND, YOU KNOW, NOW, YOU KNOW, uh, AS SOMEONE WHO who OWNS a, uh, AN RV, YOU KNOW, PEOPLE ARE NOW TALKING ABOUT, YOU KNOW, SATELLITE uh, CONNECTIVITY and THAT, YOU KNOW, IT'S $280 A MONTH AND YOU CAN HAVE THIS THING ON YOUR MOTOR THAT ALLOWS YOU TO HAVE BROADBAND WIDE ACCESS through the uh, satellite and as long as you're clear to the sky and here we're still talking about burying cables and wires and and digging holes and getting uh right of ways and and so you know I think we've talked about this before uh on the show you know one of the problems in New Mexico has is a unique situation which is we have wide swaths of open land between urban areas so you know because you have stuff in Albuquerque doesn't mean you're going to be able to get all of that out to Wagon Mound New Mexico uh and it's virtually impossible so I'd like to see them, you know, not only talk about this, but hopefully with this group that they're putting together, they're going to put some, you know, you know, we we we've we put money into being a spaceport state. We've put money into doing other things. We should be putting money into becoming a a technology hub because if we could figure it out here, you're going to figure it out anywhere Pretty much in the world, right? If you can figure out a way to communicate in Cloudcroft or Wagon Mound or all the way down to Carrizozo, you're going to solve a lot of problems across the country That's and around the world. And we need to be focused on some of that. And I think we lose that lots of times. We focus on, you know, how do we help the the, the Ma BELL companies? How do we help the co ops? How do we do these other things that are out there? And we forget that there's other alternative answers. Good
0: point there. Hey, Sophie, the governor signed the Civil Rights Act, kind of a big deal for a lot of folks around here, allows claims in state district court that previously had to be filed in federal court. It's a big deal when you think about it. It removes qualified immunity as an acceptable defense to those claims, but it also caps claims, this is one of my questions here, at $2 million. That that seems bizarre to me. Is that just a starting point, and the courts are going to have to figure that out as it goes along?
5: That's a great, that's a great question. Um, but the cap is there. My sense was that it was that it was put in place at least in part in order to get the thing through because right. there was a lot of pushback. and you know, state government is quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Community go- municipal governments governments are quite powerful in New Mexico. And this bill, you know, this change really strikes at um, the immunity that that employees and then you know their employers, the state the state actors, had in the, in the courts. So, you know, qualified immunity was an Im- imperfect program. Oh, you know, it's, it's kind frankly, it's kind of a mess, but, but with New Mexico sweeping that away, it, it really remains to be seen how this is going to work in the courts. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the coverage that we've seen so far has maybe missed one detail that is pretty important here, which is that, um, the qualified immunity applies to violations of, of rights under the New Mexico Constitution, and those are not everything, right? right. That's not you can't sue for literally everything.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, if you take a look at the Bill of Rights in the New Mexico Constitution, uh it, it picks out different things, but it's it's not um, you know, that may also need to be addressed how how broad those rights are defined within that.
0: Oh. Uh, little ways to go on that one, but it's a start, as they say. And, Julianne, just a little bit of time here on this one. Uh, Legislation that didn't make the cut. Do you want to take a couple things here? Three areas that caught my attention. Police reform, of course, payday lending, and professionalizing the legislature. I'm curious which of those three things surprised you the most with its, uh, let's say, unpopularity (laughs) among lawmakers. (laughs)
3: You know, these efforts to reform uh, lending in New Mexico, you know, small time lending, sometimes it's called payday lending, storefront lending, predatory lending is the term that we've used at the Santa Fe Reporter quite a bit. Um, we dove into this issue before the session began, because, of course, this is not the first legislative session in which lawmakers have entertained reform. And as you mentioned, it was a loser this session. Um, you had a bill that was introduced by Senator Bill Souls that um, would have capped the these types of loans at the same rate that um the military uh, issues a cap. You can't issue one of these loans to a member of the military for higher than 36%. But in New Mexico, we said it's okay to charge just any New Mexican who's in need of money 175% interest. That's what we think is okay. That's what our legislature thinks is okay. Um, We had some negotiation in the house where they uh, bifurcated different types of predatory loans in terms of trying to set a higher cap for some and a lower cap for others. And ultimately, those amendments weren't friendly to the Senate. And so that bill died in the concurrence committee. And I'm sure we'll see it come back again at a future session.
0: There you go. That'll do it for our legislative look. We'll no doubt be talking about all the last-minute signatures or vetoes on this program and on our social media. Just search New Mexico and Focus on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
2: This week was a big week in terms of COVID-19 response here in New Mexico. As the state announced, they were officially moving into phase two of the vaccination rollout. Basically, anybody over the age of 16 is now eligible for the vaccine. Of course, that means you can get it if the supply is there, and we are still limited in that way, so it's not as if everybody can run and get their doses but uh, we continue to do very well nationwide in terms of the percentage of people being vaccinated the percentage of vaccines that we get being administered and we wanted to take a, a moment to check back in with our health department secretary Tracy Collins about these the evolution of the rollout the move into phase 2 how the state is tracking this and what happens moving forward and especially how they're making sure that the most vulnerable in New Mexico continue to get the priority needed for the vaccination moving forward. So here now, Senior Producer Matt Grubbs with that interview with Dr. Tracy Collins.
0: The State Department of Health announced this week that all New Mexicans over the age of 16 are eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. That doesn't mean there's a shot at the ready, though. And MIF senior producer, Matt Grubbs spoke this week to Health Secretary Dr. Tracy Collins.
7: Secretary Dr. Tracy Collins, thank you so much for making a, a few minutes to chat with us. I'm curious about phase two, which is sort of the rest of, of New Mexico. If the White House hadn't recommended or asked states to get that, would you have recommended that New Mexico go there yet?
8: You know, it's a great question. Actually, we would have recommended it. It really is a matter of looking at making sure that we have sites that can provide vaccine that they don't begin to slow down. So we would have opened it up. Yes, thank you.
7: Sure. Is the, as I understand phase two, um, it's less than 100,000 people. Um, we look at the 1. I think six, eight million people um, who are in the pool of people who can be vaccinated by, by DOH and, and the medical uh, team. Mm -hmm. is what's the purpose, I guess, of having a phase two if it's that small? I think a lot of people thought, wow, it's going to be a a big chunk of New Mexico, but it really isn't.
8: Well, you know, um, given that New Mexico has a lot of residents with chronic conditions, the largest group are really those who are 16 and older with chronic conditions. And so when you think about phase two, it's really making sure everyone can get access to the vaccine, even if they don't have a chronic condition. So yes, phase two is not very large, but we wanted to try and push as many folks who are at higher risk to vaccines first before opening up that phase.
7: Okay, um, expanding to phase two with the reasoning that in some parts of the state, like uh, Clovis or, or Roswell, where they can't fill all the available appointments, um, would another way to do that be to rethink how the state distributes vaccines and instead of creating sort of the longer lines, and I say lines, but we know that's, that's sort of theoretical, um, instead of creating those, those longer wait times for people, why not just rethink where this vaccine is going and sending it to the places that, that need it as opposed to the places that can't fill those appointments?
8: So, you know, there are multiple factors that go into how we distribute the vaccine and the rollout. We did definitely look at those who are at high risk throughout the state. Then we looked at areas with high social vulnerability, um, and then also looking at vaccine providers. So there are multiple factors and we're trying to address all of those, keeping in mind the prioritization of those most at risk. So as we're looking at opening up phase two, It really is to make sure that we have those sites that are somewhat slowing down on appointments, that they can keep their momentum going. So I appreciate your question, but there are multiple factors that played into how we rolled out the vaccine.
7: Okay, okay. You've said 50% of of New Mexicans, eligible New Mexicans have received that first shot. Um, The numbers Mm -hmm. that you shared this week uh, indicated that, however, about less than half the state is in the registration system. So 829,000 people, I think, was the number that you shared um, this week in terms of the number of people who've gone online and registered to get that shot. Um, Mm -hmm. That's less than half the state, less than half the eligible people, I should say. Um, Can you help me understand how those two Sets of numbers fit together?
8: So, when you think about the registration app, um, it was rolled out about two weeks after we started receiving vaccines. And there are healthcare workers who are being vaccinated. And so, there's a large proportion of those folks who didn't really use the app, at least for that first shot. And so, we have that component. We have people who have actually been vaccinated who are not healthcare workers who also didn't use the app. So there is a subset of New Mexicans who have not used the app, but fortunately have gotten their vaccine. So not everyone is using the app. We do encourage that, but not everyone's using it.
7: Okay. If, if not everyone's using it, how are those people getting their vaccinations?
8: So they're getting them either through um, a site before, you know, we actually encourage people to use the vaccine portal to register but they could actually go to maybe a pharmacy or other another site and what they're what will happen is that data will show up in a registration um, site called nimsis it's required that we use that so any vaccine we distribute in the state needs to be reported in nimsis by a vaccine provider so someone could in fact go and get their vaccine and then ultimately we'll see that data in nimsis but it's not in our portal.
7: I see. So this is all, as as you and I are talking, this is all sort of back end stuff, um, your mm-hmm. interaction with the federal government, et cetera? Right. Okay. Okay. Um, the um, The state has has tried to maintain a, a high degree of control over who gets this. As you said, you've sort of tried to target um, those who need it most. Uh, is there a point at which the state needs to sort of relinquish control? Um, we've been we've been at this for. A couple of months at least, maybe um, you would know better than I, but maybe 10 weeks or something like that with the with the portal. But fewer than half the state, um, half the people who are eligible um, are online. And, and I know that there is a group of New Mexicans um, who are getting vaccinated without that. Um, but is there a point at which the state just needs to say, OK, have at it?
8: You know, in general, actually, we are doing that now by opening up options for people to get, you know, schedule their own appointments and not have to wait for an event code. I think for us, what we're trying to do is keep New Mexico safe. So we need to have some understanding of where people are with being vaccinated. So we can't completely back off. We really need to keep our eye on the data and making sure that folks who are most at risk are getting vaccinated. And then the entire state is getting vaccinated so that we can reach that point where we can stop the virus from replicating and also from mutating. So I don't think we can back off completely if I'm understanding your question uh, clearly, but I think what we're doing is trying to make it easier for people to get to vaccine appointments.
7: Okay. Um, Is there... um... I guess if you're able to track um, who's getting vaccinated through this back-end system that we were just talking about, I think it was called NIMSIS, is there necessarily a need for the front-end system that restricts who can get it and when?
8: So you know, at this point, we're not restricting it per se. We're actually trying to match the demand with what's available as a supply. So on the front end, we're trying to help vaccine providers by pushing people to appointments helping them understand who, who wants an appointment. So that front end piece is still important.
7: Okay, Um herd immunity, uh, that's something that you've recently begun talking about. Um, I know the, the scientific community hasn't reached a consensus. I'm hearing around 80%, maybe five less, five more. Um, given sort of the difficulty that the state has had in registering um, people into that system, and given sort of the the polling that we've seen that say maybe a third of Americans have this um, concern or questions about the the vaccine. Do you think herd immunity is achievable in the state?
8: You know, it's an excellent question. And please keep in mind when you talk about herd immunity, that's where you're reaching a certain percentage of the population that you can help, you know, either with the vaccine, you know, with getting their immune system such that this virus cannot replicate anymore. We're still learning about this virus. We may not actually reach that herd immunity. It may become something where, like influenza, where each year we get a booster dose or a new vaccine just because there's such a change in um, the sequencing of a given vaccine or what we currently are treating. And so, What I want to make clear, I'm sorry, I'm not being very clear right now, is that, first of all, we don't know if herd immunity is possible with COVID-19. It may be that it's not. If it were, we're looking at numbers around 70% or so, but also keep in mind, we've not opened up vaccine to children, so because we don't have the data to say that it's okay to do this. We have some data from Pfizer on folks who are adolescents, so 12 to 15 that it's actually looking like it's going to be efficacious and safe to use in that group. Um, But more trials are being done starting now with children who are younger and in the summer. So Pfizer is doing some work now. Moderna is going to start in the summer. And so, you know, one of the challenges that you see nationally with this idea of herd immunity is that we don't know that we can reach herd immunity with COVID. But the more people we get vaccinated currently, the more likely we are to stop the replication, which is a good thing. So that's moving in the right direction.
7: Okay. Uh, New Mexico, at least as highlighted in the CDC numbers um, by Colleen Heald in the in the Albuquerque Journal, um, ranks well in terms of getting shots or needles in arms of the population overall, but there are some vulnerable communities that are being missed. Um, and the state ranks much further down the list. Uh 37th, I believe, was the number that the journal reported as opposed to the first in in percentage of of vaccines in arms. Uh, I know that's something that you're looking at. I know that's something that you're not insensitive to. Can you help me understand sort of how that came to be and what's being done?
8: Yeah, so the Social Vulnerability Index includes 15 factors. Um, Housing, who's living in the house, how vulnerable they are. Um, Other sort of determinants of health, like income, education all of those go into this measurement called social vulnerability index. And that index, the higher the number, the more vulnerable you are. So as a state, as you pointed out, we've done really well with getting shots in arms just in general. When we look at how we're doing with those socially vulnerable groups, that's where you're seeing a discrepancy, but please keep in mind that the data looking at that has not adjusted for how we as a state are really high on our social vulnerability compared to other states in the union. So when we consider that, and if you were to go back and look at that data and adjust for how vulnerable I'm going to say New Mexico is as a state, we're actually doing better. So that ranking that 37th is kind of a very crude and not well adjusted estimate of how New Mexico is doing. And if we begin to go back and look and say New Mexico compared to maybe Colorado, I'm just throwing that out as an example, we're actually probably doing a lot better than people realize, even with the social vulnerability, It's just that we are a sick state, I'm going to say that. There's a lot of poverty, a lot of people with chronic conditions. And so overall, we rank really high as a state compared to other states in the country for our vulnerability.
7: Dr. Tracy Collins, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Going to stay on the COVID-19 front for just a bit. Again, it was a landmark week in terms of the state's approach to handing out the vaccines. Door is open much wider now with anyone over 16 now being eligible for the vaccine. In addition, we now have schools back in session, in person, statewide, And uh, so all signs seem to point towards progress, but as usual, there are some hiccups and wrinkles as well. And so we wanted to get the line opinion panel and their thoughts and opinions on this uh, this week as well. So we're going to jump right back to the line table now for some thoughts and opinions on all of that here again, host Gene Grant.
0: WHAT DOES OUR LINE PANEL MAKE OF THE STATE'S PLAN AND ITS EXECUTION WHEN IT COMES TO VACCINE DISTRIBUTION? LET'S GET INTO IT. SOPHIE, WHAT'S THE POINT OF HAVING A PHASE 2 IF FEWER THAN 100,000 PEOPLE ARE IN THAT GROUP?
5: WELL, I MEAN, THE the VALUE OF of HAVING A PHASE 2 AND and VACCINATING THOSE 100,000 PEOPLE IS THAT THAT'S THE NEXT GROUP THAT NEEDS TO GET THE SHOT. Okay. but you know as, as opportunities have opened up for the state overall, something really interesting has happened. There's been some notice of the apparently the fact that states like New Mexico that have been more cautious, more um, restrictive in terms of who they will allow to get the shot Mm when seem to be moving ahead faster um, and more effectively than states that just kind of threw the doors open at the beginning. Um, Of course, New Mexico's numbers, which are if not the best in the country, maybe some of the best in the country, are are really helped by the work that um, has happened on Navajo Nation and with other tribes. IN TERMS OF GETTING TRIBAL MEMBERS AND OTHER COMMUNITY MEMBERS THEIR VACCINES QUICKLY AND EFFECTIVELY, EFFICIENTLY. Um, but, BUT NEW Mexico's in, IN GOOD SHAPE IN TERMS OF VACCINATION.
0: YOU KNOW, DAN, A LOT OF THIS COMES DOWN TO, HOW WE SHOULD PUT THIS, uh, MESSAGING. Uh, THE GOVERNOR'S OFFICE HAS BEEN MESSAGING HARD ABOUT, YOU KNOW, THE GOOD THINGS THAT ARE GOING ON. DOES IT REALLY MEAN A WHOLE LOT TO THE PERSON ON THE STREET IF THEY'RE 70 AND CAN'T QUITE GET A SHOT? Quite yet, or are they get yeah, an appointment I, and it's out in grants or something.
4: Yeah, I think I think you know. Listen, I think that there's some of this is out of their control, obviously, right? I mean, you got you got private vendors that are doing this. I mean, you know, I mean, my wife got her first shot two three weeks ago, and I got notified Monday that I'm going to get my first shot. You know, my wife's a few years younger than I am, not much. SO Don't anybody start writing letters. Uh, and definitely not nearly as as far in far better shape than I am. Let's just say I'm a little bit on the round mound to rebound, Um, got pre-diabetes, and here I am. So um, I, I think that there's been some consternation with, you know, people in groups saying, well, I got a shot and how did that person not get a shot? Or how did this person not get a shot? The other thing that I think doesn't help uh, for, for New Mexico is the constant drum beat from places like Texas, right? Where Texas has been, you know, just get in line to get a shot. They got, you know, more shots than they got people. I mean, you know, I've got, I got lots of friends that have driven down to Amarillo and um, you know, went to the the place in Amarillo, got their shot, came home. Two weeks later, went down, got their second shot, came home. No questions asked, no problems. And so you see that stuff on the news, you hear that stuff travel out there. It makes people get get uh, get flustered. But look, I think I think we're doing the best we can with what we have. Look, I, I'm as ardent of a critic of the governor, and definitely don't miss an opportunity to go after Democrats whenever I have one. But you know, I think we all got to pump our brakes and remember this pandemic that wasn't a playbook. Right? You can't right. say, well, this is what what we did 10 years ago. The next person that has to deal with something like this, there's gonna be a lot less forgiveness from the public. But I think dealing with what people had, the information that was out there, I think they're doing the best job they can do, and I think everybody just needs to relax. I think what's going to be an interesting conversation about the shots in the next few months is going to be how many people start saying, "I'm not getting one." Period. I'm not getting it. I'm starting to hear that from folks, and yet you're hearing from the feds that they're going to have travel. uh, They're going to list. They're going to limit the ability to get on airplanes. Potentially go to big public events if you don't have. Let me stop you there. Interesting.
0: I I do want to get to that. Those those last two points you made. uh, I got a couple more before there, Julianne. Uh, There's a question of whether the state would have opened vaccinations to everyone if the Biden administration hadn't demanded it, if you think about it. Uh, What do we gain by towing the line here? I mean, it doesn't seem to win us more shots, or, or am I missing something here?
3: I mean, I don't think that Governor Michelle Michelle Lujan Grisham was going to buck the Biden administration in terms of like their, um, you know, changing priorities for who gets the vaccine. I think that the state's um, plan is not, you know, wasn't a big shift away from those federal uh, deadlines that started to come out, you know, once um, once the, the feds got into action. So, I mean, I think that the um, I have to say that I agree with a lot of things that Dan just said, which, you know, it pains me to say, but um, I think New Mexicans in general have had a really good, um, you know, shake on this and that there have been people who are vulnerable and people who needed extra effort to get it. HAVE RECEIVED THAT EXTRA EFFORT. AND I THINK IT'S GREAT TO SEE NEW MEXICO AT THE TOP OF THE LIST. WE ALL LOVE THAT. SOPHIE, YOU
0: KNOW, um, THE governor's CLAIMING 50% OF US HAVE BEEN VACCINATED, BUT, YOU KNOW, THERE'S BEEN STORIES IN THE JOURNAL THAT SAYS, LOOK, FOR VULNERABLE COMMUNITIES, AND COLLEEN HIELD HAD A PARTICULARLY INTERESTING STORY IN THE JOURNAL. IT'S LAGGED WHEN IT COMES TO MOST VULNERABLE POPULATIONS, you know, DESPITE SETTING THE STATE UP TO ACTUALLY GET AT THOSE POPULATIONS FIRST. Something hasn't That's quite right. happened, but at the same time, that perception is out there that we're doing this, you know, better than everybody out there.
2: Well, there's, I mean, there's sort of
5: two channels here, right? There's, there's the overall um, push toward herd immunity. And just to clarify, Jean, I, I, that when we talk about 50%, we're talking about 50% of adults. Um, Children who are, you know, a very significant part of the population have not received vaccines yet, I believe it's over 16 is where you can where you can start to get the vaccination. So certainly we want to see that that push toward herd immunity. Um, There has been some coverage, some analysis to suggest that we may be closer than we think we are right now because of the number of people who did get the disease before before vaccination. Mm -hmm. And so there's that element. But I think you bring up a really important other element, which is that when you look at the the subcategories of who has has been vaccinated, we see that African-Americans, Um, Latinos um, are are getting vaccinated. Have been vaccinated at a much lower rate, um, and that's a real cause for concern. There were some states. I will remind you that that attempted to focus on issues of uh, racial fairness and equity in terms of their vaccine distribution. And that did not go over well in those states. Um, New Mexico really focused on different categories of people, but now as we're looking at those numbers, we can see that what you might have hoped targeting you know focusing on people who had particular health conditions things like that didn't get the state as far as it had hoped it would get um, in terms again of the african-american hispanic and to a certain extent native american communities Mm -hmm. so um, you know that's a that's a difficult that's a difficult challenge this the folks at the department of health health and human services are telling us that they're working on those things i think as a community we have an obligation to hold their feet to the fire on that
0: point there. Uh, just to make your point, Sophie, about, as I'm reading it, about 26.3% of African Americans have received their first dose here in New Mexico for Hispanics and Latinos, who make up about a third of all, uh, everyone here in New Mexico. That number is 32.1%, but that was at the time of that, uh, of that uh, story coming out a couple of days ago. Daniel, i got a question for you. Is, is, um, is herd immunity a realistic goal with so few people? You mentioned this a second ago, and I want to come back to you on that. THAT SO MANY FOLKS ARE SAYING THEY'RE NOT GOING TO DO THIS. SO IS HERD IMMUNITY A REASONABLE GOAL AT THIS POINT? YOU
4: KNOW, I MEAN, LISTEN, YOU KNOW, THE PROBLEM RIGHT NOW THAT I THINK WITH THE COVID STUFF IS THERE'S SO MUCH MISINFORMATION OUT THERE AND DISINFORMATION THAT IT'S HARD TO UNDERSTAND WHAT IS THE RIGHT INFORMATION. Uh, I THINK THERE'S A LOT OF PEOPLE WHO THINK IT IS. I THINK THERE'S A LOT OF PEOPLE WHO THINK, YOU KNOW, HEY, LISTEN, WE'RE JUST GOING TO GO, WE'RE GOING TO JUST battle through this like we do everything else out there. There's other people out there who say, you know, take this serious. This could kill you. Look, I had COVID over Christmas. Didn't affect me at all. I had a little bit of a, you know, slight fever for a day and was fine. I've got friends, you know, I've got a, I've got a lady that works for me who's going uh, leaving the end of this week to go to Seattle, her 46 year old sister contracted COVID in Cal in uh, Arizona. And through all the stuff they had to do, her throat is now too small because of scar tissue from trachs that they have to send her to Seattle to either give her a permanent trach or do a surgery to open up her throat so she can breathe. Wow. So I just, there's just so many stories out there that I think that so many people are, are just thinking, you know, ah, I'll get it. You know, what about it? My concern is some of the people that I hear in my circles that tell me, ah, don't worry about it. I'll get it. Are the last people you want getting COVID, right? right. I mean, it's not, you know, it's yep. one thing for my son, the athlete to tell you, I'll get COVID and let me see what happens. At some, sometime you might be like, okay, it's another thing when your buddy who's 68 years old, 375 pounds and wheezes when he walks, tells you, ah, I'm going to get the herd immunity process. You're just, I just think it now, medically, there's folks out there that say it's going to happen. They say, mm-hmm. sometime around the end of April, May. Well, But there's some thoughts out there that, you know, you're hearing some reports that sometime maybe around the end of May Mm -hmm. that we may reach that tipping point with herd immunity in the United States. I don't know. I I just don't think it's worth risking.
0: Let me bring another thing into this. Uh, Sophie, Daniel mentioned, of course, uh, this idea of a vaccination passport or an app. You know, let businesses know, other places know people who have had their shots, all that kind of thing. YOU KNOW, THE STATE'S BEEN MUM ON THIS SO FAR. ANY PREDICTIONS ON WHERE THE GOVERNOR MIGHT BE ON THIS? IT'S, it's A TOUGH ONE TO SELL TO SOME FOLKS.
5: It, IT IS. YOU KNOW, I'LL JUST SAY ANECDOTALLY THAT THERE ARE A HANDFUL OF PEOPLE I'VE TALKED TO WHO, YEAH, YOU KNOW, NOT SO SURE ABOUT TAKING THE VACCINE, AND THEN THEY'LL SAY, BUT IF MY FATHER'S NURSING HOME REQUIRES ME TO GET IT IN ORDER TO SEE HIM, mm-hmm. I'M GOING TO DO IT IF IT'S NECESSARY IN ORDER TO TRAVEL. I'm going to do it. So it seems to me that there are some people who are on the fence and for whom those incentives, disincentives, whatever you want to call them, might actually be uh, effective. But, but beyond that, um, what we're seeing at the national level, what we're hearing from the Biden administration is that it's um, it's private industry that is driving a fair amount of the interest in this sort of program. Mm-hmm. Airlines thinking about you know, how can we bring people back onto planes, have them feel safe, cruise ships leading that, other businesses.
0: There you what go. Can got, we got, do got to, to step in, unfortunately. Customers. Got to step in. I'm just a little yeah. short on time, so Sophie, my fault. we got to include Santa Fe, of course, for Julianne and her folks up there, too. A lot of travelers from Texas, so this could be a big deal. We're out of time with this group, and turn now to our land and environment reporter, Laura Pascus.
2: All right, it is the second Friday of the month. That means it's one of our favorite Fridays of the month because Our Land is back. This is our environmental series. And uh, Laura Paskus, our correspondent, you see her a lot on the show. But this is her, her big premiere of this month's Our Land. And you've heard a lot of folks. You've probably seen a lot of the modeling and the imagery. We are in for a very tough summer and fall in terms of the drought really a a once-in-a-decade kind of drought, if not more. We've talked about how that means the Rio Grande will likely dry in large swaths in places that it does not normally dry. And one of the focal points usually when you talk about the water levels in New Mexico is Elephant Butte Lake. So Laura and our crew headed down there to see the levels, which are very low, about 9% uh, right now and to talk about what the impacts of that for the entire stretch of the river are and a little more about what we're in for and how we can start to think about conservation and planning for what uh, is just um, getting to be longer and longer drought periods. And uh, we can't just keep relying and hoping on strong snowpacks anymore. And so really important and a great piece here. A shout out to our our land team, not only Laura Paskas, but um, this month we had a lot of help in terms of the shooting and the editing from crew member here at New Mexico PBS, Kevin Maestas, also senior producer Matt Grubbs, and our production manager, Anthony Losstetter. So a shout out to all of them for all of their hard work on our land each and every month. Very labor intensive piece, a lot of travel involved, but we really take a lot of pride in these and we're happy to bring this one to you. So Let's jump right now down to Elephant Butte Lake. Here is correspondent Laura Paskus.
9: This month on Our Land, we talk about the Rio Grande, what's happening this year, but into the future as scientists learn more and more about what will happen to the river and its reservoirs and the rest of us who rely upon this water as temperatures keep rising and we keep having difficult conditions. The impacts of climate change don't just reflect one dry year or one bad season. They intensify one another. They build on one another. We see this in our forests, our rivers, all across the state. One place where it's plain to see how warming plays out in our arid state. Elephant Butte Reservoir in Southern New Mexico.
1: It's sad to say that right now we're at about 9% capacity. This this reservoir can hold over 2,200,000 acre feet of water. And in my tenure with the district, I've seen it spill over the dam and I've seen it is lower than it is right now. So it's an unfortunate thing, but when you're in the West, Uh, Droughts happen, and we're in a mega drought right now, decadal drought.
9: Gary Esslinger started working here in 1978 for the Elephant Butte Irrigation District. Today, he's treasurer and manager responsible for bringing water to more than 90,000 acres of pecans, alfalfa, chili, onions, and even cotton through hatch and down to the Mesilla Valley. Last fall, the district told farmers not to expect much water from this reservoir on the Rio Grande. They're anticipating that this could be the worst season in memory.
1: Most of the farmers in this valley are pretty familiar with where we're located right now, and they come up here and they can see the same thing. So it's not any news to them that we are short of surface water. We've been short for, you know, going on, Twenty some odd years
9: to survive. Farmers have to adapt. They pump groundwater, or they fallow fields to use what water is available for higher value crops.
1: I'd hate to see it go away. I hate to see agriculture just d- diminish, especially here because it's it's a great part of this valley, from from here all the way down to to El Paso. It flourishes, and and you think about it, and. Um, It's got a great economic benefit to this entire state.
9: Like many dams across the West, Elephant Butte was built by the US Bureau of Reclamation. Dagmar Llewellyn is a hydrologist with the agency. But
6: now we do it in a more... What Reclamation did from the beginning and is is charged with is taking what can be an inhospitable landscape for human activities and finding ways to make it so that we can thrive here, right? That's what we did in the past by building dams. That was the, the action that we thought was needed at that time. The agency has evolved though. And I believe that the programs that I work on under the Secure Water Act are what enable us to do the same thing now, which is to try to find ways to take what's becoming a more and more challenging and inhospitable landscape for a lot of human activities and find ways to make them possible and to allow us to continue to thrive here.
9: Our lives have certainly changed since the early 20th century when Elephant Butte Dam was built. And as we've pumped more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we've warmed
6: the climate. There is no new normal. We talk about what is the flow of this river relative to the average, to the normal. But the challenge of climate change is that we're losing the whole concept of normal.
9: For centuries, farmers relied upon the Rio Grande as a snowmelt-driven system.
6: The water you see here predominantly originates in the mountains of Colorado and northern New Mexico, and it builds up over the course of the winter as it snows, into a snowpack. And that's the primary place where we actually store our water. Some
9: moisture would seep into the forests. Some would melt through the spring when farmers need it to sustain crops until the summer monsoons. But as arid places like New Mexico warm, they also dry.
6: So think about how your hair dryer works. Right, you, you heat things up so that you get the moisture to go into the air. It comes out of our soils, it comes out of our tree roots, it comes out, of, and everything that uses water—riparian our riparian systems, our crops, everything—all the way down needs more water just because it's warmer, just because of the way your hair dryer works.
9: Esslinger is an optimist. In his time here, he has seen droughts and floods, and he has faith.
1: We have to. Trust mankind and trust our, our future to those who will come in here and see new innovative ways to, to help um, deal with the situation, whether it's a drought situation or flood. I mean, my God, if, if we had a flood event here, and I've seen those, I've seen hatch underwater, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's as terrible to, a sight to see as, as this empty lake.
9: Elephant Butte's low levels don't just cause problems for farmers here. Under the Rio Grande Compact, until those levels come up and New Mexico can send the water it owes to downstream users, we can't store water in some upstream reservoirs either. And these problems won't disappear anytime soon.
6: And we have a river that's highly variable in its flows both within the year and between years, and it's just going to get more variable. So everything, they call it intensification of the water cycle, everything is just happening more so.
9: The climate of the past that we all came to rely upon no longer offers a map for the future. And the better we understand that, accept that, the better we can know how to face that future. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas.
2: In many ways, Laura Pascas, our Our Land correspondent, was also the inspiration for a new art installation over at UNM, uh, really looking at the impact of the Rio Grande. It's called There Must Be Other Names for the River. And another familiar name involved in that project is Marisa DeMarco, our collaborators and partners over at KUNM Radio, really a unique and interesting way to talk about our connections to the river and the Rio Grande and its importance, uh, the lifeblood really of this state in so many ways, and bringing a musical element to that. So we wanted to talk both of them a little bit more about the inspiration for this installation. You'll also find out more about how you can catch it both in person and virtually. They put it up online, which is great. So we encourage you to check that out and to wet your whistle. Here is a preview of There Must Be Other Names for the River. Send it back now to correspondent Laura Paskus. (music)
0: We remain focused on the river this week as a new exhibit at the University of New Mexico Art Museum looks at the changing Rio Grande. Taking the concept of deep time, the creators looked at the river's long history. They also took decades worth of U.S. Geological Survey flow data from the headwaters to the delta and set it to song. The project is called There Must Be Other Names for the River. And correspondent Laura Pascas spoke with one of the exhibit's three creators longtime reporter, Marisa DeMarco.
9: Marisa DeMarco, you're a longtime reporter, a musician, an artist. How did you and your fellow collaborators tell the story of the Rio Grande through song?
10: Yeah, so we were together in a class that was um, evaluating a concept called deep time. It was uh, Nina Elder's class. And we um, we were thinking about the age of the river, which is you know, five million years old from its very, very beginnings, maybe like a million years old from the shape that we know it today, the, the river that we call the Rio Grande. And um, we uh, were, I was thinking maybe we could use uh, public flow data and turn it into um, a graphic score for singers. Um, so we we did that work and there was a lot of data crunching uh, my collaborator jessica zeglin uh it turned into a big math project for a couple of days weirdly um as these things do um and uh dylan mclaughlin who also worked on the piece um helped um turn that data into a score for the singers and then what we do is when it's performed live, we have those six singers, each of whom is representing a data point, um, a place along the river where the data were collected. And um, we, we have them stand in the shape of the river and you can kind of hear as they're singing, the, um, the flows changing from year to year. Sometimes it can feel like the water is coming down the river from place to place, from the headwaters, all the way to the Gulf.
9: So I'm curious, how did the performance of the the river story and song, how did it affect you and your collaborators, the singers and the audiences as well?
10: We heard so much feedback from people that um, they had a really powerful uh, emotional response because as the singers are singing this flow data, uh, we have the years kind of um, passing along on a projector. So you kind of know where they are in telling this story. And I think um, there was some debate initially about whether we should fully do that or not to orient the audience, or if we'd rather them just experience the piece as a whole. But a lot of people in the audience were looking at those years and thinking about, oh, this is the year my child was born. Um, this is the year I moved here. This is the year my grandfather passed. Uh, so those years, as they come through, you're having these um, place memories too, a time memory and a place memory of maybe what your relationship with the river was like at that point, right? I think a lot of us have gone to the river for not just exercise and beauty and enjoyment, but for reflection, for uh, grief, for other important big moments in our lives. And so um, as you're looking at those years, you can kind of remember these times, and so people had a really emotional response. The singers um, and the artists, my, myself, Jessica and Dylan, I think we all feel that piece as a tribute to the river. Um, and so we took the singers, we've performed it indoors at National Hispanic Cultural Center and also at UNM Art Museum. But we did also take the, the singers down to the river to do an acapella version of the piece with their feet in the water, um, and I think that performance, which was just private, there was no audience. It's just us, but I think that um, that felt really profound to all of us. Like we hope that what we're expressing is connection to the river, but also gratitude, um, and and kind of a, a way to honor the river. I think we felt that.
9: I think that really comes across in the piece and I know I was at your initial performance at the UNM Art Museum and I remember I found myself bracing like knowing what was coming you know in the 2000s as as we saw the river's levels drop so dramatically like I found myself really bracing and waiting to see how the singers were going to embody the river I'm curious you also project the river's flows and song out into the future, how did you do that?
10: Yeah, so there's a point where the score just kind of disappears and the next year that comes up is next year. And the thought was to ask these people who've been rehearsing this piece over and over again, who visited the river, because part of the score instruction is that the singer should visit the river the day before it's performed, right? who are, who are finding this connection and who now know the data, right? Because they've been seeing this data for weeks and weeks and weeks um, to then it is part of embodying and channeling the river to then project its future. Um, and so that's a completely improvisational segment of the piece. Um, and it starts with the next year and it goes out a couple thousand years. Now we know that, I think what we've seen is that scientists have projected the river's future out, you know, I think a hundred years or 200 years, but we're looking uh, a little further ahead because if you remember that the river is a million years old, the last um, 50 years or so, 40 years, where we're really starting to see the impacts of climate change is nothing. It's just the blink of an eye, right? Um, So when you're asking them to look out a couple thousand years, even that's kind of nothing to the river, right? So trying to imagine time more from the perspective of the river, and I know that the river doesn't have a perspective, but thinking about the age of it outside of us and thinking about it as an entity beyond us, right?
9: So... Can you tell us where can people see this exhibit? How can they be involved and, and possibly contribute or be a part of this as well?
10: Yeah, so um, we initially planned to make it a physical installation. We were asked to make it a physical installation at Unamart Museum, but pandemic, you know, got in the way of a lot of those plans. So it's um, at OtherNamesforTheRiver.com is where you can find the piece. We made a web-based installation and we are asking um, that if people want to, they can contribute. Uh, There's a page there called Tributaries. And the idea is that people can um, tell a story. They could follow the score. We have the score available there if they wanna sing it. Um, There's a hotline. So if you don't have time to like record yourself with a phone and send an email about it, you can just call a phone number and tell us a story. Um, depending, of course, on your on your access to internet, we wanted to make that an option for anyone who lives along the river, um, even if in really rural areas where maybe net access is spotty. Right. So you can sing us a song. You could write your own song. You could respond to the piece. You could follow the piece. Um, and the, that part ended up being really exciting. It's kind of like one of those things we're so focused on the exhibition, but we got such great contributions right away to the tributaries. I loved listening to all of them um, and thinking about the person. They would, often would put a little information about what they were thinking about as they made that piece or why they chose that part of the piece to respond to um, and tell or tell us a little bit about where they are. Um, so that that part is really cool. So tributaries on the website, othernamesfortheriver.com.
9: Awesome. I love this exhibit. I can't wait to see how it continues to grow. And Marisa DeMarco, thank you so much.
2: That will wrap it up for the show this week, but do want to bring you a little bit of extra content before we go this week. You've heard us talk a lot about our Growing Forward podcast, which is looking and tracking everything to do with cannabis legalization in the industry here in New Mexico. That of course was passed by the legislature in the recent special session. It's on the governor's desk. We expect that to be signed too as well soon, as well as another bill that offers expungements for cannabis related offenses. Big part of the push for legalization has been social justice and righting a lot of the wrongs of the war on drugs. And really, for those of you who've been in New Mexico for a while, you know that this conversation really began in the early 1990s with former Governor Gary Johnson, who uh, made waves not only in New Mexico, but nationally in calling for the legalization of cannabis. And uh, in many ways, it has come to define Gary Johnson as a politician from that point forward, including two runs for uh, President of the United States as a Libertarian candidate. And so we wanted to catch up with Gary Johnson and get his thoughts on coming full circle with cannabis legalization in New Mexico, what he thinks about the program and how it's been set up by lawmakers. Um, And it's a fascinating interview. Our co-hosts for Growing Forward are Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick. And so wanted to bring that to you now, encourage you to Subscribe to the Growing Forward podcast if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So rate, subscribe, review, share uh, with friends, get the word out. It's just a great piece of work. We're, We're thrilled to be doing that and working on trying to bring you a season three as we try to roll out this program in New Mexico. So here is Gary Johnson joining Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick on Growing Forward.
11: Welcome back to another episode of Growing Forward. It's a collaborative podcast between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS, where we take a look at cannabis in New Mexico. I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report.
12: And I'm Megan Kamrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and on-air host and
13: reporter with KUNM. Today, and I'm uh, Gary Johnson, ski bum um, um, cyclist.
11: I was just going to say, we're, we're kind of going back in time today. Uh, our guest today, as he just announced, is Gary Johnson, a former two-term governor of New Mexico. Uh, he left the Republican Party when he ran for president as a libertarian in 2012. He again ran for president as a libertarian in 2016, and then for U.S. Senate in 2018, also as a libertarian. Uh, but in his second term as governor back in 1999, uh, Johnson was criticized for his stance that cannabis should be fully legalized. Now, of course, pending a signature from current governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, New Mexico is slated to do just that. So thanks for joining us today, Governor Johnson.
13: (laughs) Yeah, kind of good news, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, only uh, 20, 22 years, but hey, better now, better late than never, right?
11: Yes, yeah, and and we should be clear, um, there were lots of people at that time across the country calling for legalization, just not necessarily people in elected positions uh, and more specifically a governor. Uh, can you tell us what made you at that time kind of come out publicly to, to advocate for legalization and, and what you hoped the legislature might do with that message?
13: Well, uh, the recognition that a- at that time half, and not that, it has, not that it's changed that much, but half of what we spend on law enforcement, the courts, and the prisons is drug-related, and what are we getting for that? And the recognition that this is, these laws are terribly uh discriminatory and then the notion that um i believe that the, and this is what i said in 1999 that i believe legalizing marijuana will lead to less uh overall substance abuse because people are going to find marijuana as uh as such a safer alternative
11: so it was kind of a long shot i think at the time but was there any part of you that hoped that maybe you could get some republican support maybe even democratic support at that time in the legislature to say hey maybe we should take a look at this
13: no andy there was absolutely no uh, i mean everybody was throwing stones everybody uh democrats republicans there was uh, you, you know uh, there was talk of Im- impeachment uh gee you're going to get impeached for voicing an opinion on a topic that you have uh, you are an elected official and aren't you supposed to get into office and do the things that you find out that uh, need doing and do them. So, no, there was no chance whatsoever that this was going to go anywhere at the time. And I, I, you know, I wasn't naive at the time. And I'm, uh, But at the time, um, I did say that marijuana will be legalized. There's no question about it. The question is, uh, how long will it take?
12: You've previously said that you were an occasional consumer of cannabis, is that still the case?
13: Oh yeah, yeah, and, I, and I also my whole life is uh, health and wellness. That's what my whole life is about. I haven't had a drink in uh, 34 years, um, but I do find marijuana as a much safer alternative. And for me, marijuana is health and wellness. I think one of the offshoots of legalizing marijuana in a state where it hasn't been legal is I think a lot of people um, comply with the law and have never used marijuana because it's been illegal. I think one of the big surprises is going to be because it's legal, people are going to try it for the first time. And I I think the takeaway is going to be, what have we done to this point? Because this is pleasant. This This is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing.
12: Why do you like to use cannabis? Do you use it for medical reasons or other reasons?
13: Well, for the same reasons that someone would have a cocktail in the evening or a couple of cocktails to take the, the, uh, I don't know, the edge off the day. I think I'm in that category when it comes to marijuana. And I'll also say that, you know, the stories abound uh, from people who have used marijuana and said they've had a horrible experience how much of that had to do with the fact that it was illegal and that you had to buy it uh, through the black market. I think a lot of those stories uh, come from back, back to the fact that it was, it was criminal and because of that, people didn't use it and um, that's gonna change.
12: It's so interesting you bring that up. It's such a cultural shift. You don't think twice about you know saying, well, I came home, and had a cocktail you know, I mean, that's, that's such a normal thing in American culture for good or for bad. So, um, you're seeing that maybe see a shift like that with
13: cannabis. Well, and, and when people, this is my opinion, when people start to use cannabis on a more regular basis, they're going to stop, you know, opioid when uh, opioid uh, addiction, when Trump, when Trump says, I'm challenging the pharmaceutical industries of America to come up with a you know, uh, a non-addictive, effective uh, replacement for opioids, I'm screaming, it's here already, you know, cannabis. Um, and that's what people are going to find. People are going to find this as a much safer alternative than, uh, than opioids, uh, than alcohol, uh, than other drugs. And other drugs, what do other drugs have to do with? Well, the person that sells marijuana, uh, also sells harder drugs. that's that's the person you have to go to. That goes away when you when you legalize marijuana and it's now available uh, at a store. And I also applaud I really want to applaud the governor for calling a special session on this and and getting it done. Um, I, I think that that was um, I, I think that that was terrific. I applaud the fact that it's going to be a really cheap license to, uh, produce or a- actually sell. Uh, I know that there are warts on everything. The wart on this bill seems to be uh, putting a cap on production. Uh, boy, that's, you know, but hey, uh, this, uh, this can be uh, remedied. This can be uh, amended in the future to take care of that issue.
11: It's interesting you, you brought up that, that you praised uh, the current governor for doing that. Um, as, as a self-described uh, fiscal conservative, does it seem to you that the cost of the special session uh, uh, is, is negligible when it comes to the cost of you know, legalizing this substance?
13: I do believe that, Andy, I absolutely do. And, that, and uh, you know, people ask all the time, well, gee, there's all this revenue from, uh, uh, you know, from the taxes. Well, forget about the revenue, just think of the savings when it comes to law enforcement the courts and the prisons, if the police can deal with real crime, and real crime, definitionally speaking, that's when you do harm to somebody else. If you're doing arguably just harm to yourself by using marijuana, who cares? Who really cares?
11: So uh, uh, Megan kind of brought this up uh, part way, uh, as far as, you know, the stigma of of using cannabis versus alcohol. You don't really see this with alcohol, but there's a a long running stereotype that people who use cannabis are spacey or forgetful, or maybe have no filter. And it seems to me you're kind of unfiltered anyway by nature. Uh, But I often hear, (laughs) hear people relate cannabis use to your comments in the news and interviews. Does it ever bother you that when these interview clips come out, people say, oh, he's just smoked too much weed?
13: Well, uh, you know, okay, so this is where we've gotten to now. Uh, Look, I I don't want to be a hypocrite, and I never have been a hypocrite. When I ran for governor the first time, and I admitted marijuana use, there were so many that wanted to know if I'd been in drug rehab, and was I remorseful for my marijuana use? Come on. At the time, I said, look, I'm one of 100 million Americans who've tried marijuana or used it. Tens of millions that use it on a regular basis. You can criticize me for using it, but am I criminal? Uh, No. And then that's back to the discriminatory nature of the law to begin with. You know what? Uh, I'm caught with marijuana as a teenager growing up i'm white uh, i got a job i'm going to school i live in albuquerque good chance just drive on down the road and don't do it again as opposed to someone black uh, or of color hispanic pulled over the car smells of weed okay we're going to put this guy through the ringer and they do and i don't want to fault law enforcement in any of this either these are laws that needed to be changed. And of course, that is the law that we change. I was talking to a a congressional candidate uh, this cycle, uh, and she said that uh, she'd been in law enforcement her entire life. Look, um, you're not running for law, you're not running for sheriff here, you're running for Congress, and you're gonna be put in a position to change laws that shouldn't exist, not to enforce laws that are in fact discriminatory and don't do any good whatsoever, do more harm than good.
12: Speaking of law enforcement, we know Darren White, your former Department of Public Safety secretary quit after you made that announcement about cannabis when you were governor. White has since changed his stance on cannabis and has a hand as a medical cannabis producer in New Mexico. But what are some of the other reactions that you got to your call for legalization?
13: Well, uh, actually, it was a big surprise uh, when I called for legalization, not being naive. I don't think I'm naive. I really thought, and this was a different time, 1999, that faxes, phone calls, emails, uh, letters to the governor, uh, I thought that this was going to run like a 90 to 10 negative. I really did. And it turned out to be uh, 95 to 5 positive from all over the world. And the input from the world quadrupled overnight because of the stance that I took on marijuana. So I, right off the bat, recognized that, whoa, I'm talking about something that really needs to be talked about and nobody else is.
12: Oregon has gone a step farther now, step further, and decriminalized all drugs. And this is sort of opponents of legalizing cannabis bring up these things as kind of a worst case scenario um, in terms of opening the door to other things. But what do you think? Would you support a more lenient attitude to other drugs?
13: Absolutely. And Megan, one of the things that I have said from day one is, is that first of all, from day one, I said all I am advocating for is the legalization of marijuana. But when we do that, um, we're going to uh, we're going to we're going to enlighten ourselves on drug policy, uh, drug laws, and eventually it will lead to decriminalization, legalization of all drugs. But that is probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but it's positive. I'm back to this. Look, if you're doing no harm to anyone arguably other than yourself, why, don't, why, why are you not allowed to live your life uh, with that freedom?
12: But some people would say there is a harm to other drugs like opioids or harder drugs in terms of a public health crisis, in terms of what it does to our public health, our hospital system, to families. So I, I guess I'd like your, get your thoughts on that.
13: Well, uh, one of the things that I uh, dove into immediately, this was in 1999, was, you know, these statistics about, uh, about hospital use and what have you. And I just came to find out that it's all totally bogus. The numbers are totally bogus. You know, they, they, the government still spends tens of millions of dollars to try and discredit uh, marijuana. And we're paying for that. We're, you know, we're living in a state now that it's legal and yet the federal government is spending tens of millions of dollars to tell you, don't use it and that the the harm's associated with it. Uh, The government lies when it comes to drugs.
12: Yeah, but we we, clearly we've had an opioid crisis the last decade or more nationwide. Right. From prescription opioids and heroin.
13: I mean, well, and and this is my point, Megan, is is uh, marijuana is a viable alternative to opioids and will be and will reduce opioid use, as I think it's already been shown.
11: So several years ago, you were uh, principal of a cannabis company and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you divested when you ran for president in 2016. Is that correct? You
13: know, it is. And and part of that has to do with, uh, boy, the scrutiny that one undergoes to run for public office. I don't know why anybody would want to run for public office. And now I'm saying that after having done it so many times, but it's becoming more and more complex. And just the notion that I owned, stock, uh, you know, shares in a cannabis company made national news and what those cannabis companies were. And it's really not fair to those cannabis companies to, uh, you know, whether they like it or not to have my name associated with, uh, with the stock that I may own uh, for their company. Right now, I am... Uh, My involvement in the cannabis industry is I am on the advisory board of a hedge fund out of New York that is strictly investing in publicly traded marijuana stocks. And it's kind of exciting and uh, probably not the place to talk about it right now. But, uh, you know, Canadian stocks are the stocks that are trading on the U.S. uh, exchanges, New York, NASDAQ, the, you know, the upper tier uh, markets and the US stocks are not trading on those markets because uh, marijuana is still a class one narcotic according to the federal government, which Biden has promised uh, to uh, to change. And uh, you have to believe that he will. Can I jump
12: in for a minute on that? So there's a lot of clearly what you said, there are a lot of large business interests moving into the sphere or they have moved in. This was a concern that came up again and again in the debate here in New Mexico. Um, about how, is there a way to ensure that local smaller entrepreneurs, especially people who are from communities that were impacted by the war on drugs can get into this lucrative market? Will it be taken over by large corporate interests? And you know, I know you care about the economy in New Mexico, you're also more free market or a libertarian. So what do you think is the best route forward around those concerns? Well, uh,
13: regarding those concerns, Megan, my concerns were is that they were going to issue 10 licenses statewide for recreational marijuana and that that was the exact opposite of what they should do, which would be to open it up, make it very affordable to get licenses. And they did that. So, um, you know, the things that you're talking about, limiting the production of of growing marijuana. Um, I think that's going to have a negative impact on New Mexico competing with other states. Um, And I also, also, I always draw the comparison. Uh, Would you drink, if you had the choice, would you drink uh, bathtub gin or Tanqueray gin? Probably Tanqueray. And that's a result of legalization and the refinement of these products. And the best products are the products that should survive the fact that New Mexico uh, is going to make it readily available for you or I to get in the business, if we so choose, uh, you know that was that was my concern at the onset of all this, and um, it it didn't happen. They they did make it very very uh, affordable and easy. We'll see how easy it is, but uh, you know they made it affordable for any one of us to get into the business
11: sort of sort of unrelated and to sort of put a bow on this, this whole conversation. In, in 2016, you told me you were done running for office. And then in 2018, you ran for US Senate. And at the end of that Senate run, you kind of joked to me when I asked you again that I caught you in a lie. So I have to ask now that we have you, uh, do you plan to run for office again?
13: So, so here's where I've come to politically is, you know what, if I'm in, in an election and there are a hundred people that vote, and five people say, no way, Gary Johnson, 95 says, great. I'm just wondering who those five are. How could they possibly disagree with me? So, no, nah, Andy, I'm, I, that's where I'm at. It's just, and it's just gotten worse and worse. And as a sidelight to the, that Senate run, do you, do you know that I had to spend eight thousand dollars just to fill out the financial disclosure form to run for u.s senate and if that isn't restricting people who have means who who might be qualified for running for office uh, i don't know what does i think it was one of the u.s senators who is a you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of wealth said that he spent spends more on his senate disclosure statement running for senate than he makes as a u.s senator
11: well former governor gary johnson thank you so much for for joining us today
13: <laughs> well and, th- and thank you both and andy thank you for your advocacy through all of this uh, you you've been you know you've been a been a good rudder through this whole process and uh you know, maybe we should tap each other on the back here
11: a little bit. Thank you. Thank you.
12: <laughs> this was another episode of Growing Forward, a podcast about cannabis in New Mexico. It's a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report. You can find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Megan Kamrick, a correspondent with New Mexico PBS and an on-air host and reporter with KUNM. My co-host is Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. Our producers are Kevin McDonald and Bryce Dix. Our theme music is by Christian Bjorklund and our logo was created by Katherine Conley.
2: And we leave you this week, as always, with some final thoughts from host Gene Grant, this time again, back on the COVID-19 vaccinations. Uh, A lot of great numbers coming out in terms of how many people have at least had the first shot, how many people have had both shots. If you're getting the vaccine that requires uh, the two shots and the two weeks uh, for um, the full vaccination to take effect. Uh, And I know It's been interesting for me. I got my first shot this week. I'm very thankful for that. But I really had started to get a little jealous, uh, a fear of missing out, if you will, for those who had already gotten it. Uh, And so I know there's a lot of anxious people out there in terms of when will it be my turn. And uh, it's just an unbelievable rollout that we've seen to think about trying to get vaccinations to everyone Uh, in the country and New Mexico, and it's going to take some patience. So here's Gene Grant with some thoughts about all of that. We will join you again next week. Got a lot of great stuff coming your way. We'll be looking at some of the environmental legislation that passed out of uh, the Roundhouse this past year. And we'll also be looking at how uh, the theater community here in Albuquerque has been trying to um, weather the COVID-19 storm. So we're excited to bring all that to you. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and have a great weekend.
0: Put your hand up if you've gotten at least one vaccine shot of any brand. I would be one. The good news is a decent number of us may have put a hand up, as many as 50% in some estimates. And compared to the rest of the country, we are looking on track for vaccination rates that were sort of mocked around this time last year, no? Things change, times change, attitudes change, all that but what remains is daunting. We have seen the dire warnings from the CDC about a potential fourth wave, that masks may be a fact of life every flu season. New Mexico is doing what we can and doing it well compared to other states, but as you heard from the panel, those numbers need a dry eye when it comes to the most vulnerable in the state. All we can do for the moment is stay patient and have trust. The state is trying to vaccinate as many people as possible until we can all claim that two shot, two weeks, Let's stay vigilant.